0: Welcome, and thank you for listening to the West Hills Podcast. West Hills Church is a balanced, engaged, authentic, disciple-making church that serves the St. Louis, Missouri area with Sunday services at 9 and 10.45 a.m. For more information on our church, go to westhillsstl.org. Now, here's the sermon from Sunday. Many of you love, I know, uh, C.S. Lewis's classic Christian allegory, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, in which the four uh, Pavensi children, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, accidentally enter the magical world of Narnia on the other side of an old wardrobe and uh, have to fight to save Narnia from the wicked white witch with the help of the true king of the land, Aslan. And one of the best scenes in the book comes when the humans first hear his name, hear word of this Lion King and Christ figure, Aslan, from the friendly and articulate Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. Lucy asks, is he quite safe? Safe, Mr. Beaver replies. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He isn't safe, he's good. He's the king. These three facts about Jesus, I think, provide all the explanation we need in order to understand why Christianity is so steeply declining in our country today. Most of us like our safety, we love our sin, and we want more than anything to be free. Not free the way we just sang about, chosen and free, but free to do whatever we want in our hearts. And yet Jesus isn't safe, he opposes sin, because he's good, and he demands our obedience to him because he's the king. Jesus is threatening. He was arrested by the Pharisees because he threatened their religious power. He was crucified by the Romans because he threatened their political power. And he was rejected by most of those he encountered in his life and most of people who still encounter him today because he threatens our personal power, our autonomy. Jesus demanded, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross to follow me. He said, you've got to be willing to lose your life in order to find new life in me. He wasn't just speaking in code. Jesus meant it. Luke 9 recounts the stories of three would-be disciples who fell away because they refused to pay this price that Jesus demanded, the cost of discipleship, as Bonhoeffer put it. One said to him, I will follow you wherever you go, Jesus. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Are you willing to be homeless to follow me? to another Jesus said follow me but he said Lord let me first go and bury my father Jesus said to him leave the dead to bury their own dead but as for you go and proclaim the kingdom of God are you willing to drop everything at a moment's notice even good important things burying your parents to count it all as rubbish compared to knowing Christ yet another said I will follow you Lord but let me first say farewell to those at my home Jesus said to him no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back as fit for the kingdom of God. Are you willing to choose me, Jesus, over your mother, father, spouse, children? Jesus said elsewhere, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own family, if your affection for others doesn't pale in comparison to your affection and your pursuit of me, then you cannot be my disciple. In other words, follow me wherever I take you, whenever I call you, and whatever it costs you, Or don't follow me at all. Jesus is threatening. Following him necessarily will mean no little disturbance to your current way of life this morning. And this morning we're going to see that even two and a half decades after his death, his resurrection, and his ascension back into heaven, Jesus continued to threaten people, specifically in the city of Ephesus where the apostle Paul finds himself in Acts chapter 19 this morning where he spent two whole years on his third missionary journey evangelizing and strengthening the church. You might remember from last week we read that God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul in Ephesus. Supernaturally healing people, casting out demons, not to mention saving souls for all of eternity And yet, many of the Ephesians perceived, they rightly perceived, that Jesus was a threat to their way of life in three ways. And I'm going to argue this morning that Jesus still threatens our way of life today in these same three ways, but then I'm going to conclude by telling you why he's worth it. Because some of you, by the end of the next 40 minutes, will be sitting here and thinking, "Uh, I thought you were supposed to be selling me on Jesus, Pastor. Pastor. But you're telling me that he's a threat to my autonomy, to my right to self-determine my own life, that sometimes Jesus calls people to be homeless, to forsake their families, that in every case Jesus demands that we die to ourselves, our own will, and our own way to follow him instead? Who would want to follow someone like that? I do. And I hope by the end of this morning, you will too. I hope to convince you that he's worth it. So I invite you to stand with me as we read God's word together from Acts chapter 19, verses 21 through 41. Hear the word of the Lord. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. Having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. they were enraged, and they were crying out, "'Great is Artemis of the Ephesians!' So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater." Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. Most of them didn't even know why they'd come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against when the courts are open and there are proconsuls, Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again this morning for your word. Holy Spirit, would you now come and open hearts open eyes, spiritual eyes, open minds and ears to see, to hear, to behold, and to personally experience the change, the threatening but life-giving change that Jesus wants to offer us this morning. Father, if there's anyone in this room who has not yet tasted and seen that the Lord is good, that Jesus, you are better than all that this world has to offer. I pray that you would give them a glimpse of your beauty this morning, the beauty of your son, the beauty of the gospel, and the truth of what he's done for us in his life and death and resurrection to offer us new life. Father, would you give that gift of that new life to an adopted child newly adopted son or daughter of you this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. may be seated. Jesus threatens us in three ways this morning. First of all, he threatens our wallets. This is the whole backdrop for this passage, section verses 21 through 41, chapter 19. Some of your Bibles might Title of the passage A Riot at Ephesus, but that whole riot was instigated. The reason for the riot is that Jesus was starting to hurt the Ephesians where it smarts the most, in their back pockets, their wallets. I considered titling this sermon It's All About the Benjamins, or uh, perhaps It's the Economy Stupid, but suffice it to say that the Ephesians, like many of us today, they would put up with a lot uh, politically, socially even religiously but when it started to affect them financially when gas stays at 450 a gallon for long enough we have our limits right so the passage actually begins with Paul here planning to leave Ephesus and head through Macedonia and Achaia and route back to Jerusalem and ultimately all the way west to Rome remember he has been in Ephesus for uh, over two years now, it's his longest stay anywhere in any of his missionary journeys, and his ministry has been so successful there that last week we heard that all the residents of Asia Minor heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So Paul deemed his work there done, time to move on, mission accomplished, and so he sends Timothy and Erastus on ahead of him, not realizing that God had one last surprise waiting for Paul in Ephesus, Verse 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Verse 23 sets the stage for the rest of the passage here. It tells us what happened, when it happened, and why it happened. What happened? No little disturbance. A major riot, as a matter of fact. When did it happen? It happened about that time. I want to just zoom in here for a second. About the time that Paul was ready to move on because of all his ministry success in the city of Ephesus. Doesn't that make sense, though, that Satan would attack the church at the peak of its success? How many churches we look around and hear stories of these days at the height of their glory and success Is the pride comes before the fall, Satan... Why would Satan bother going after Paul in Ephesus if the church hadn't been growing like gangbusters? If Paul hadn't been effective, why would Satan waste his time? Unlike God, Satan is not omnipotent. Satan has limited resources. He's not going to waste them attacking a church that's not advancing the gospel. Just give them a loud band and a fog machine and let them entertain themselves to death. Or how about this? Give them a Bible and let them study themselves to death without ever paying it forward and trusting the word to others as 2 Timothy 2.2 instructs us to. Satan's not going to waste his time on Christians who never evangelize or disciple others, who pose no threat to the advance of God's kingdom into Satan's kingdom of darkness. Just give them a Netflix subscription, an Instagram account, let them entertain themselves to get to death. Now, I point that out for two reasons. First, on the personal level, some of you may be experiencing no little disturbance in your personal lives this morning as we speak. Perhaps you're here and you're wondering if God is allowing you to suffer this present hardship in your life as punishment for some unknown sin in your heart. Maybe, but maybe Satan is attacking you because like Paul, you're exactly where God wants you to be, doing exactly what he's called you to do, and that makes you a threat. I also pointed out for us corporately, as a church, because I think we, on a church level, need to prepare ourselves for disturbances, for opposition here at West Hills. We may not be the church of Ephesus, but we have grown by over 30% in the last two years in spite of COVID. Uh, To God's glory, praise be to God that he is building his church here at West Hills. I think we would be naive not to expect Satan's attacks that are sure to come our way because of it. And that's the third point here in verse 23. Why did Satan attack the church in Ephesus? This disturbance concerned the way. Remember, the way was the predominant term used for the church in the first century before the term Christian caught on. But it was also, not coincidentally, the term that Jesus had used to refer to himself. Remember, I am the way, the truth, the truth. And the life. We're about to meet some Ephesians who didn't care much for Jesus, the way. They didn't care much for the church, the followers of the way. And they definitely didn't care for the impact that Jesus and the church were having on their way of life. Their lifestyle, particularly on their wallets, on their bottom line. Verse 24. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. Here's some historical context for us. Ephesus was the epicenter of the worship of Artemis, this Greek goddess of nature and fertility, also known as Diana in the Roman pantheon of God. She was one of the big 12, the Olympian gods in Greek mythology, and her temple, the temple constructed to her there in Ephesus, is considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world millions of pilgrims would flock there every year to worship and to beseech her favor. We are talking big business. And apparently, Demetrius was something like the head of the silversmith labor union in town. Because in verse 25, he gathers together all his fellow silversmiths, along with the workmen in similar trades, the blacksmith, the copper smiths, all the smiths, Uh, And he reminds them, men, you know that from this business, we have our wealth. This is our livelihood that the church is threatening here. Because they made silver idols and figurines, coins, statues, all manner of Artemis memorabilia and paraphernalia that we found in archaeological digs for her devotees to purchase and to return home with to worship Artemis but sales have been down, they've been way down in the past two years since this Paul guy came to town and started preaching about this Jesus guy. Started convincing people, verse 26, that God's made with hands are not, in fact, God's. Go figure. It doesn't seem like it would take that much of an argument to persuade them. Listen, if it's possible for your horse to hit a pothole on the ride home, and your God can fall out of your saddlebag and shatter into pieces, it probably wasn't that powerful to begin with. Demetrius is going to pretend like he cares about Artemis in verse 27, but the reason there's a reason that he started his complaint with the danger to his, this trade of ours. He says the threat to our business, our wallets, our wealth, verse 25, our wealth. Because it really is all about the Benjamins. As we think about how we might apply this to today's world, we in the 21st century American church, we often bemoan the rapid secularization of our surrounding society. But can you imagine if instead of just complaining about the growing ungodliness around us, we actually curbed it, you know, as light and salt? If we stemmed the decay, and the darkness with our wallets. Do you know how I know that the majority of Americans aren't actually Christians, despite the fact that 63% of people still self-identify that way according to polls? It's because the top two most watched shows last year across all streaming services were Squid Game and Lucifer, a series about a violent game show where contestants compete to be the last person not graphically murdered on screen, and a show that sympathetically portrays the devil. With our wallets, with our views, as a society, these are the shows we're asking Hollywood to keep producing for us. The number two most streamed song of 2021 was Montero by Lil Nas X, which he wrote, quote, to help normalize same-sex lust in music and whose music video features the artist giving the devil an erotic lap dance in hell. Friends, if 63% of our society was truly regenerate, there wouldn't be a market for such filth. If 63% of our society was regenerate, Starbucks wouldn't still be the number one coffee chain in the country, despite their very public decision last month to start paying for employees who want to cross state lines to get an abortion. Disney wouldn't get away with actively pushing its LGBTQ agenda on our kids. If Christians would start voting with our wallets. Because when Jesus changes a person, truly changes us, he eventually will change every part of us, and that includes our wallets. Jesus will change the way you spend your money as his follower. That was true in late 19th century England when the Salvation Army began taking the gospel into the streets of London So many drunks and degenerates got saved and sobered up that all the bar and brothel owners in town organized their own skeleton army to try and combat the evangelism of the Salvation Army because Jesus was so terrible for business. It was true of the Ephesian converts last week in verses 17 through 20 who were renouncing their dark magic and turning to Christ instead. And as they did, they were bringing all their old sorcery and witchcraft books and burning them in the sight of all. Despite the fact that Luke tells us they could have sold the books for a sum of over $5 million. But the idea that they would have been encouraging others to participate in such ungodly practices was just unthinkable to them, no matter the price tag. We can contrast that with the story from Matthew chapter 19 of another would-be follower of Jesus, a rich young man whom Jesus invited to follow him, said, go sell all your stuff, give the proceeds to the poor, you're going to store up treasures in heaven, plus you get to be my disciple. Follow me. But the man went away sad because he was so wealthy. And Jesus was a threat to his wallet. And Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve both God and money. You have to pick this morning. I ask you, how about you this morning? Have you picked? I'll just exhort you, encourage you. You should pick Jesus. He is the much more sensible choice. As Jesus himself reasons for us, it doesn't make much sense to store up treasures for yourselves here on earth where moth and rust can destroy Where thieves can break in and steal, why not invest your treasures instead in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal? As the song we opened with this morning put it, no hour should be wasted on seeking our joy and placing our hope in what will be destroyed. That's foolishness. Live for earthly treasures that can at best bring you pleasure for a few decades here in this world that's a mere shadow of the glories that await us in the world to come anyway. And at worst, those treasures can be taken from you in the blink of an eye, an economic downturn, another stock market crash, a bad investment, a business deal gone bad. Or you can live for Jesus and store up treasures that will last for all eternity, that you'll enjoy for all eternity. Friends, the choice is clear, but you should know that should you choose Jesus, that he will threaten your wallet because Jesus knew exactly how dangerous money can be. Money perhaps more than any other idol we chase after. This is why Jesus talked about it. Second most of all topics in the Gospels after the kingdom of God is money, money more than any other idol has the potential to enslave us, to become our master. That's why I said you can't serve two masters. So Jesus warned, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. I'm not sure he's being hyperbolic. Hebrews 13.5 warns us to keep, I, I just spent a whole two week vacation on a country club in northern Michigan where the per capita income is, I I have no guess. And I don't expect to see a lot of them in heaven one day. Money is dangerous. Hebrews 13.5 warns us to keep your life free from the love of money. Because 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And besides... Ecclesiastes 5.10, he who loves money will never be satisfied with money. As John D. Rockefeller, one of the wealthiest men that's ever walked the planet, admitted when he was asked, how much money is enough? He famously famously replied, just a little more. It will never satisfy you, never be enough. But even more importantly than that, as Proverbs 11.4 reminds us, all the money in the world will not be able to save you on the day of judgment. As Jesus put it, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Jesus lovingly threatens our wallets for the sake of our souls. Number two, Jesus threatens our worship. He threatens our worship even though Demetrius seems to be feigning concern for the worship of Artemis here in verse 27. He says, you know, if we let Paul go on preaching, the temple of our great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. She may even be deposed from her magnificence. I don't think Demetrius is all that concerned with Artemis' magnificence and reputation uh, so much as his, his own wallet. But we discover in verse 28 that many of uh, the Ephes- his fellow Ephesian listeners that he's arguing to that he's riling up, they were truly distraught over this threat that Jesus posed to their precious god, goddess Artemis. It says in verse 28, when they heard this, when they heard Demetrius' speech, they were enraged and they were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Demetrius reached for his pocket to secure his wallet. Others reached for their idols to safeguard their worship. And they got so upset, verse 29, that the whole city we hear was filled with confusion. They rushed together into the theater. The uh, ancient amphitheater in Ephesus could hold up to 25,000 people. They packed it out, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus. They couldn't find Paul to string him up. And so instead, they grabbed the closest guys they could find, Paul's companions and travel. And lest we question the sincerity of their devotion to Artemis, we read in verse 34 that for two whole hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, say what you want about the silliness of worshiping a fake goddess and a sacred stone that fell from the sky. Verse 35, apparently... A meteorite had fallen in Ephesus, and they believed this was some sort of divine proof of Artemis's power. You can say what you want about it, but let me just ask you: when was the last time you worshiped Jesus for two hours uninterrupted? Some of some of us our, our eyes roll back in our heads when Brian starts the third chorus to the, at the end of the song. And meanwhile, they chanted, Great is Artemis, for two hours. I was thinking this week, sadly, the closest parallel to that I think we're likely to find these days won't be in the sanctuary. It will be in the stadium, right? If you went downtown for the parade back in 2019, when the Blues finally won the Stanley Cup, sadly, I can wrap my mind around a crowd of 500,000 people turning out to chant "Let's Go Blues" for two hours straight, or to sing through "Gloria" on repeat for two hours straight that's a whole lot easier for me to imagine than drawing a crowd of even 500 to sing holy, holy, holy. Is the Lord God Almighty for two hours on a Sunday? And yet, according to Revelation 4.8, that's exactly what we'll be singing for the rest of eternity around Jesus' throne together. Two hours, two lifetimes won't suffice. That's a good segue to our personal application of point number two here. We may not chant for make-believe goddesses or bow before rocks that fall from the sky anymore, but are we really any less idolatrous in our own modern ways than these first century pagans were? An idol is anything that you elevate and put on the throne of your heart, the place that's supposed to be reserved for Christ alone. Jokes aside, you know, sports really has become an idol for so many people. Even many Christians today, some of you may spend more time on fantasy football than you do in God's Word, on ESPN. Some of you might spend more time on college football, recruiting news sites than you do in prayer. Spend more time cheering for the Cardinals than you do worshiping Jesus. It's not hard when they play virtually every night for three hours. Even youth sports, please, I I, I urge you, do not become one of these families this fall who will spend more Sunday mornings on the soccer field than in the sanctuary. What are you teaching your kids about the relative importance of gathering with the body of Christ when you do that? Sports are just the tip of the iceberg. How about the idol of work? Some of us, we spend most of our waking hours throughout the week with our hearts unconsciously Chanting, great is Boeing, great is BJC Healthcare, great is Special School District of St. Louis County, and Jesus has to compete with your employer for your heart. Or the idol of politics, great is Donald Trump, great is Joe Biden. Some of us, if we're really honest, wouldn't even think of voting for Jesus if he was on the ballot. He's soft on immigration, welcome the stranger, Matthew 25, 35. He's weak on foreign policy, love your enemies, Matthew 5. And don't even get a start, a started on his economic plan, sermon point number one. Or maybe it's your family. You know, after all, home is where the heart is supposed to be, as they say. Family is the most socially acceptable idol in our society. Great is Polly. Great is Ellery. Great is Elijah. That's what my heart is supposed to cry, society tells me, but not Jesus. And Jesus dares to say, if you don't hate your own father and mother, if you don't hate your own wife and kids, your brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life, you can't be my disciple. Which brings us to our number one idol, of course, the idol self more than anything else I can speak for myself my heart cries great is Will doesn't your heart? great is Ellen great is Bruce great is Meg isn't that the cry of your heart? more often than not A.W. Tozer said there is a cross and a throne in every man's heart and you will find him on one or the other. That's good. There's a cross and a throne in every man's heart, and you will find him on one or the other. Which did you climb this morning when you woke up? The cross or the throne? Did you reclimb the cross when your kids woke up early and threw off all the plans that you had for the morning? Did you reclimb the cross when your wife informed you that she made lunch plans after church with her family and now you're going to miss that baseball game, the Cardinals game you were planning to watch in the afternoon? Did you reclimb the cross to die to yourself? Friends, Jesus wants to threaten our worship today. Our worship of sports, of entertainment, of comfort, of pleasure, sex, money, status, power, politics, work, family, self. Jesus is inviting us to so much better than all of that. This morning he's inviting us to worship him. To find our rest, our joy, our hope in him. The one by whom and for whom we were created, will our hearts beat for him above all else. Lastly and briefly, number 3. Jesus threatens our well-being. Webster defines well-being as the state of being happy, healthy, or prosperous. Listen, if you are looking to live your best life now, here on earth, Jesus is not the guy for you. I don't know how many of you have read the book, but if that's what you're after, your best life now, I could just give you the Notes: Jesus isn't the guy for you. Jesus actually promised that if you follow him, you will have troubles in this life. The Apostle Paul, as a case in point, Paul bragged in 2 Corinthians 11 that he suffered far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death, five times I received Pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And he he traded a life of ease. Paul was climbing the religious, socioeconomic ladder of his day. He was a well, highly respected, probably comfortable financially uh, upper echelon of society, Pharisee rising through the ranks, a leader of the church. He said, I counted all rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ. And Paul probably would have died prematurely a decade or so early right here in Acts chapter 19 if he had gone into the Ephesian amphitheater like he'd wanted to. That's Paul for you. Paul sees a group of 20, uh, 25,000 people all gathered in one place, and all he can think about is, I mean, what an opportunity to go share the gospel with them. Never mind the fact the reason they're gathered is to try and kill you. And he, would have ultimately, and he would ultimately be beheaded for the faith a decade later. Paul would have gladly died for Christ right here in chapter 19 if his fellow disciples and his friends, the Asiarchs, hadn't stopped him, forcibly stopped him from entering the amphitheater in verses 30 and 31. Jesus threatened Paul's well-being. He threatened Gaius and Aristarchus' well-being. And you need to know this morning, friend, that if you choose to follow Jesus, he will threaten your well-being as well. Jesus did not come to offer you health, wealth, and happiness in this life. See, that's that's how the so-called prosperity gospel has tried to redefine the good news of Christianity. Jesus wants to make you healthy and wealthy and happy in this life. The problem with the prosperity gospel, aside from the fact that it is self-evidently false on its face, the book of Ecclesiastes admits, and anyone with two eyes and a brain can just look out in the world and plainly observe, that godly people get sick and die every day while the wicked prosper, but theologically speaking, the real problem with the prosperity gospel isn't that it overpromises on God's word, it underpromises. Friends, what Jesus came to offer you, what he died and was raised to offer you is so much more than health and wealth in this life. He offers us so much more this morning than even the best that this world has to offer. It really is, but a glimpse, a shadow of the glories that are to come. And that's what he came to offer you. Paul said, listen, if it is for this life only that we Christians have hope, we are to be pitied. He said, no, Jesus came to offer us new life. Eternal life, life to the fullest, a perfect life with him one day in heaven that will never end. Again, as we sang this morning, though trouble and anguish increase all the more in this life, they cannot compare to the glory in store. So come joy or come sorrow, whatever befalls, the light of the Savior will outshine them all that's what he promises you life to the fullest where moth and rust can't destroy friends don't settle for anything less this morning so who would want jesus you know if he is so threatening to your current way of life who 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 would want to follow jesus if he threatens your wallet your worship even your well-being Well, the answer really depends on your assessment of the relative value of two things, your current way of life and Jesus. How much do you value your current way of life and how much do you value Jesus? I I was trying to think of an illustration to end with and try and make this practical this morning. I'll try this one. Maybe it's ironic that I'm preaching against uh, how... Dangerous wealth is, and then using this analogy. But uh, I saw this funny Facebook meme this past week. It said uh, Toyota recalls 1993 Camry due to the fact that owners really should have bought something new by now. As a proud Camry owner myself now of a 2022 Camry, and I'll defend that decision. It was cheaper than buying used at the time. Um, I, I I appreciated this meme, but I just started imagining, you know. How much some owners of 1993 Camrys value their car, and they're just used to it. You know, it's broken in; it's what they're used to. So much so that if I offered, if you if you were driving a 1993 Camry this morning, and I offered you my 2022 Camry with 30 years worth of updates, you know, you got the backup cam, and you know all the bells and whistles and whatever. Zero miles. But, but on the condition that you had to trade in your 1993 Camry to get it, how many of you would take it? A better car, objectively, better car. And some of us think of coming to Jesus in that way. You know, but I'm, I'm, I'm used to this life. It's comfortable, it's broken in. I've driven in it for a while. And so many of us, we won't come to Jesus until we really start to feel the reality of the trade-in that he's offering us. That here is the better analogy for your situation. Some of you are still trying to drive around your broke-down 1971 Ford Pinto. And this morning, Jesus is offering you a 2023 Lamborghini Huracan. I got passed by one of those on the way back from Michigan this past week. That's the trade-in that he's offering you, you know. That's what you've made of your life, with you as Lord and King, freedom, autonomy, in the driver's seat, and that's what He, he offers you: life to the fullest. It's not even a contest. It seems silly to even try and persuade you that Jesus is worth that trade-in. He's worth it. This new life, eternal life that he's offering you this morning where moth and rust can't destroy, rust. He's worth it, dying to yourself, dying to your current way of life, your wallet, your worship, even your well-being. In this world, Jesus is better. Will you give him a try this morning? Will you taste and see that the Lord is good?